this is, of course, Palm Sunday, the Sunday in which we remember the entrance of our Lord Jesus Christ into Jerusalem as he, along with thousands of other pilgrims, are making their way into Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. And Jesus now has set his face like a flint toward Jerusalem, knowing it's time. As if, if when you read the Gospels, you'll hear him often say, if you go back, in fact, to his first miracle uh, at the wedding of Cana, when Mary comes to him and says, hey, just so you know, they're out of wine. <laughs> and, uh, and, and Jesus says to her, woman, my hour has not yet come. It's like a shocking kind of jarring like, whoa, what, what's that about? Um, what do you mean? My hour has not come. But, but you'll see this throughout the, the Gospels. Jesus references this hour, the hour, the hour, the hour has not come. And then you get to John chapter 12, which was our word of exhortation this morning, and Jesus says, now the hour has come. And so if you're reading through the Gospels, you get the sense of this hour, this hour, you feel the... If you, could, if you could kind of enter into the story, you'd be feeling, what is this mysterious hour that's coming? And then, again, now the hour has come. So we're in that moment as we come in on this Sunday, what we remember in the triumphal entry, as it's called, of our Lord, that the, you know, when a returning king would come back to the city, people would line the streets and there'd be maybe the dropping of palms, um, uh, laying before, if you will, the conquering king, this red carpet, if you will, uh, of sorts, uh, this victorious hailing of the king. And that's how the gospel writers see it. And if we go back into the very moment, remember the gospel writers are writing the story for those many years later, but if we could go into the moment when it's happening, Jesus is saying to the standers by, the hour has come. This is the hour. This is what it's all been moving toward. This is the crescendo. Now, of course, the disciples did not understand. They kind of thought they understand. Every now and then they'd get a wisp of it. They'd get a sense of it. And then it would seem to like evaporate, slip through their hands. They couldn't, even though Jesus was getting pretty clear about it from time to time. In fact, in the middle of the gospel, in, in Mark's gospel, in Mark 8, in Matthew's gospels, Matthew 16, Jesus says, who do you say I am? And and when Peter says, you are the Christ, Jesus says, well done. Well done. Now let me tell you what it means to be the Christ. Let me tell you what it means to be the king. And you know, Peter steps up and says, no. <laughs> so even when Jesus is saying it, Peter says, no, it's not going to be that way. And Jesus rebukes him. So even when it's kind of put very clearly, they still don't get it. Now, other times in the Gospels, Jesus does things, and he's recognized as the Christ. He's recognized by people, by a beggar on the street, son of David, you know, have mercy on me. He heals a person, and then he'll tell the person, keep your mouth quiet. Don't go talking about this. A demon in Luke 4, I think, or Luke 3, comes out and says, I know who you are. You are the Christ. <laughs> you know, it's like a demon preaches like the greatest sermon. Preaches the greatest sermon. You're the Christ. You're the Son of God. You're the Son of David. You know, and, and Jesus rebukes the demon, says, pipe down. I don't want you to be quiet. Even though the demon is declaring who he is. 
throughout his ministry, Jesus was keeping this hush. It's not that it wasn't true. It's that it wasn't the hour. And Jesus wanted these three years of ministry, traveling relatively freely, though every now and then they sought to kill him, relatively freely without provoking overtly what was going to happen this week. But now it's time for provocation. Now it's no longer a mystery. Now it's no longer shh. Now Jesus is going to provoke because he is going to stop short of Jerusalem and tell his disciples, go into town, you're going to find a donkey, get the donkey and bring it to me. All right? I'm doing something intentional now. And the disciples, remember, we've just kind of come off the healing of Lazarus. We're feeling good. And now Jesus is saying, get me a donkey. And they just see Zechariah 9, 9 and 10. Behold, your king comes riding in on a donkey. Get me a donkey. Go in there. I've already arranged it. When a when person questions you, you tell them the Lord has need of it. They'll give it to you. They get the donkey, come back, and Jesus now comes riding in on a donkey. People who have been with him have been having a sense of what's going on, and they interpret this moment properly that this is a big deal. And so though, we don't know how many people are there. It's a crowd of some sort, probably the crowd that's been walking with him. And they sense it, and they're throwing their coats down for him to walk over. They're throwing palm branches down to celebrate this, and they are singing out praise to God for this one, the son of David. They are acknowledging him to be the king. And now it'll be the enemies of Christ who say, hey, get them to be quiet. And where Jesus all along has been like, Shh, hey, we're going to keep this on the down low. Now Jesus says, not only will I not keep them quiet, even if they could be quiet, the rocks themselves would cry out now. The ministry of Jesus, the the his self-identification is now going public. It is Jesus declaring it and allowing the world to declare it and owning it and acknowledging it. Again, not that it's not been true. It has been true. But Jesus is now the hour has come. And Jesus knows this will provoke. He's not doing it merely to be provocative, but he knows what it will provoke and he's ready. The hour has come. And so Jesus is going to begin this walk, if you will, to Good Friday. Sorry, Jerry. I have a little trouble here. Now, our text today is not the Lucan text. It's not that we flick back and forth over the years, right? It's like sometimes, sometimes we we consider the the historical account. Sometimes we consider the theology of the thing. This year, we're considering the actual prophecy there in Zechariah. So our text this morning is Zechariah chapter 9, and uh, which was our, our Old Testament reading this morning. Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 and 10. And this is the prophecy that the gospel writers, again, see being fulfilled. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt the foal of a donkey, and I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. 
And what I want us to do is looking at this passage, notice, if you will, five things about our king, this king that comes riding in on a donkey. And they're pretty, they're, they're right there on the surface for us to see and to delight in. First, our king is a king of joy. This, this is not, hey, get ready, gear up, grit your teeth. <laughs> rejoice. Rejoice. And not just rejoice. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout for joy. The coming of this king is cause for celebration. And the people do it. Instinctively, those who are there kind of line up and they begin to sing and they begin to shout praises of victory over the coming of this king. The reign of the Lord Jesus Christ, the reign that he has come to bring is a source of joy. He'll go on in the farewell discourse in John, John 14, 15, 16, to say, my joy I give to you. Now this is in the darkness of Thursday on his way to Good Friday. And yet even there, he says, my joy I give to you. And I tell you all these things that your joy may be full. The first thing that we've got to appreciate right at the outset of this is that Good Friday, uh, 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 Palm Sunday, even though it leads to Good Friday, and it does, is cause for great rejoicing. Our king has come. We, we've been in this land. It's like this is the, this is the, uh, the, the, the great story, if you will, of, of, of Robin Hood. You know, here we've been suffering under Prince John because King Richard has been away. And we've had to deal with the tyranny and the misery of Prince John. And by the way, Prince John was a rat. Right? He was awful. He was a weaselly, weak, but cruel, very cruel leader in England. And unfortunately, in the story of England, he succeeded Richard. And so they had to deal, they not only had to deal with John while Richard was away, but then when Richard dies, Richard has no children, unfortunately. And so John becomes the king and he's awful, awful. But if we could just hone in on the story of Robin Hood, it's that, it's that, it's that moment in which John is the leader and he's a tyrant and he's awful. But then you get news that Richard the Lionhearted, the righteous king, the one who is so virtuous that he's off fighting for Christendom in the Crusades, that Richard is coming home and going to come back into England. That, that's the moment we're in here. We're dealing with all the tyrannical powers of this world, and not just the powers of this world, but we know we're dealing with the tyrannical principalities and powers. We, we live under a curse, right? The wicked witch is running this thing. We know that. We live under the burden of the curse in this kingdom. And what we're longing for is what every fairy tale longs for. It's why the fairy tales are truer than many things. Because we long for the day when the prince will come back and rescue his bride. And here, Zechariah is saying, the Lord is saying through Zechariah, rejoice, he's here. Now for them, it was prophecy. 
for Israel on the day of the triumphal entry on Palm Sunday, there he is. Jesus is owning this identity, and he is a king who comes to bring joy. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. So first, he's a king of joy. Secondly, and what we generally and most often think of on this Sunday, is he is a king of humility. Right, and the obvious thing, right? He he does not come riding on the war horse. We hear this every Palm Sunday, and we recognize it. it. It's the essential theme of the day that our king is one that doesn't come riding on a war horse, but he comes riding on a donkey. Indeed, the, the prophecy is intentional. There's a he is a unique king. He's a king of humility. I've, I said it before. I think it was just a couple Sundays ago. Jesus. As we, as we come unto this Palm, uh, this Palm Sunday, we recognize the humility of our King. He's coming riding on a donkey. That is to say, Jesus, His reign, His rule, is the rule of Good Friday. Remember, on this walk, you'll remember, and we've talked about this before, none of this is new, but James and John kind of slither up to Him and say, hey, can we sit on your right hand and on your left hand when you come into your kingdom? when you sit on your throne, right? They sense something big is going down here. And we would like to sit on your right and left hand. And Jesus says to them, can you be baptized with the baptism I'm going to be baptized with? Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? And they don't know what he's talking about. And then Jesus says, I, you can't, okay? Let me just help you with this. No, you can't. Those seats are reserved for two others. And we know that when he is seated with the crown and with the placard over his head, King of the Jews, there's a thief on his right and a thief on his left while he's being crowned. And James and John didn't know what they were asking for because they still don't know what kind of king Christ is. And this isn't like an aberration. Okay, this is a little pause. I'm king, but I have to go do this little detour. Jesus is telling us, and Zechariah is telling us, this is what it means to be the king in this kingdom. This is what kingship looks like. It looks like a servant. It looks like a crucifixion. As, as uh, Pastor Kevin says, Palm Sunday is Good Friday in advance. It's, it's the same thing. It's just you don't see it yet. And I find it interesting. Oh, who was saying this? Um, I think Stephanie Mitchell. Well, Stephanie loves stuff like this, but... You know, that the donkey, you know, as you know, has the cross, like, on its back. God, in his sovereign providence, you know, has that little stripe of black going down the back of the donkey and then across the shoulders, which is odd. And Jesus is on it, coming into Jerusalem. Right? He begins the week on a cross, on a donkey, and he'll end the week on a cross. There is, there is unity this week. This week begins, if you will, though it's a triumphal entry, if you have eyes to see it, he's already on the cross. He's, he's in a mode of humility and humiliation. Yes, the crowds are cheering, but he's riding in on a donkey, coming as the servant king. And I'm reminded of that passage in uh, Luke chapter 12. 
you, I, I remember preaching through Luke, and this is one of the texts that has never left me. It, well, you know, they all stick with you, but there's certain ones that still pop out to me. And funny, because the demon acknowledging Christ is also one of them, and Jesus telling him to hush. But the other is this parable that Jesus talks about when he, he says, look, the master is going to go away. This is in Luke 12 and verse 35. Let your waist be girded and your lamps burning. And you yourselves will be like men who wait for their master. And when he will return from the wedding, that when he comes and knocks, they may open to him immediately. So, hey, this is what the kingdom is like. A master is away, right? King Richard's away. And when he comes back, what's he going to find? And we won't read the whole bit here, but he says, will he find you ready? So when he comes and knocks on his own door, you're bang, it's the master, open up. Or will he find the servants over beating the other servants and that's the other group? And I can just tell you it doesn't end well for them in this parable. I mean, it's actually one of those times in Luke where you kind of cringe, you're like, mm, gee whiz, I'm not used to Jesus talking like this. Like he will slay them, he will do these. I mean, he gets, he, it's rough for those guys, okay? So you don't want to be them. But here he begins with the positive. When the master comes back and knocks on the door, what will he find? Blessed are those servants who, when the master comes, will find watching. They're looking for him. They're waiting for the master. They're waiting for King Richard to come home. Blessed are those servants who the master, when he comes home, will find watching. Assuredly, I say to you, and this is, this is the verse that stuck with me in this whole passage, like, Almost in Luke, this thing stuck with me more than any other. Surely I say to you that he will gird himself and have them sit down to eat and he will come and serve them. That just takes a left turn. I remember preaching through this and re I was not expecting. When the master comes home, hey, great. If, if you welcome him in and serve him, great, well done. He will honor you. But the text is, no, when he comes home and finds these servants waiting, he will come in, have you be seated, gird himself in servants' clothes, and serve you. Like, where'd that come from? Yet, yet, we see Jesus here riding on a donkey. Sure, they're ready for him. This group is ready for him. They're cheering him. And Jesus comes in, and what does he do? We know in the upper room, he literally puts on servants' clothes and serves them. He serves them food in the Last Supper, and he sits and washes their feet and literally serves them. This is the kind of king that we have. And again, the disciples don't know what to do with it. Like Peter's like, no, you're not washing my feet. That's not what kings do. I have to wash your feet. They just don't get it. But this is the kingship he is bringing. It's a joyful kingship, and it is a humble kingship, a self-giving kingship. And this is the kingship that Zechariah tells us is coming. Rejoice, rejoice, O daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, riding on a donkey. So it's joyful He's a king of joy, a king of humility. Thirdly, he's a king of righteousness. 
We won't linger here, but the text uh, 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 feel, takes time to mention it. Rejoice, daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming. He is just and having salvation. It's an odd translation, but it's actually he is just and saved. And I think what the, the actual prophecy is getting at here, though none of the translations translate it having, uh, saved, they all translate it having salvation as if he brings salvation, and he does, so I, I get that. But the text is speaking about him, that he is just and he is vindicated because, and, and I, I think in the original reading of this, I'm not sure what that would have meant, but my goodness, when we see the actual historical event go down, we know what it means. Because here comes this king, and from beginning to end of this week, he is going to be insulted, he is going to be accused, right? He's going to be blasphemed. He's going to, we're going to be told he's the criminal. We're going to be told he's the one that's going to get us all killed. We're going to be told that God has forsaken him. We're going to be told he's the sinner. We're going to be told all these awful things. But right here in the prophecy, we are told what kind of king he is. He's a king who welcomes the accusation. Who does not, it's not constantly justifying himself. And yet he is just. He is saved. He is vindicated by his father. I know it doesn't look like that because there he is hanging on a cross. But just wait. Wait till Easter Sunday. Wait till next week. Where you see him saved. Not just bringing salvation. Now, of course, his being saved does bring salvation. But there's something else going on here. Our king, make no mistake about it, is God's right-hand man. And you have to have eyes to see it. Because again, he's going to be in the place of the criminal. But our king is a king of joy, a king of humility, a righteous king, a king that is vindicated, saved, if you will, by the right hand of God. And we see it in the resurrection. Fourthly, he's a king of peace. And this brings us to verse 10. The king is coming and I, that is the Lord, through this king, will cut off the chariot from Ephraim. You're not going to need that war, that weapon anymore. Not going to need it. And I will cut the battle bow, also shall be cut off. The horse will be cut off from Jerusalem. And he, that is this king, will speak peace to the nations. He will speak peace. Jesus comes that we might have peace. We heard it in our New Testament reading today. We heard it in the, in, uh, you, you hear earlier in John, in John 3, when Jesus says, um, I did not come to bring condemnation to the world, but that the world through me might have life, that they might have salvation, that you might have peace. Jesus does not come, if you will, to make war, though there will be war. But he came to bring peace. Right at the beginning of his, of, of his birth, we hear peace on earth, goodwill to men. Now, in other places, you're going to hear and say, don't think I came to bring peace. <laughs> That's also in Luke. Luke gives us all the tough stuff. But the king comes that in the end, there may be peace. And we read Paul and we know what kind of peace it looks like. It's peace with one another. 
He's going to bring Jews and Gentiles together. He's going to bring us with all sorts of things that might divide us, but he's going to bring us together in him that we might have peace with one another. Read, read Ephesians 2. The barrier has been broken down, the dividing wall. And now we are united. We are a body. We are one. That's why I prayed today. If, if, if we don't see peace in the world, it means that we don't see Christ. It's that the, the, the effects of his kingdom are not working themselves out in the kingdoms of this world. Because if Christ was there, if Christ was being honored, if Christ was acknowledged in his lordship, peace would flow. Peace would flow. And until it does, there will be strife among men. So Christ came that there might be peace, to establish peace between one another and ultimately between man and God who stand in a position of enmity toward one another. I mean, in Zechariah's prophecies, like all the prophecies of the Old Testament, the people of God are at enmity with God. Israel is at enmity with their God. They're being sent off into exile. Enemies are dragging them out into slavery. And here comes the good news. Behold, here comes your king, and he comes to bring peace, sure, with one another, but more importantly, with God. Paul says in, in Romans chapter 5, for we've been justified by faith and have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this brings us, however, to that next little story in the story of the triumphal entry that Mark read to us in our New Testament reading. It's very interesting. Jesus comes riding in. It's a, it seems like everybody's happy, happy. Right? Celebration, palms going down, coats being thrown, Hosanna to God in the highest. And then you look over at Jesus. And what is he doing? You know, is he, is he, on, the, is he on, the, you know, on, the, uh, on the back of the donkey kind of you know, receiving it? No. You look and you're, you're caught up in the moment. And then you look over at Jesus and he's weeping. It's like, you're, Jesus, you're missing the whole moment here. Like you're being acknowledged, you're being praised as king, and Jesus is weeping. Why is he weeping? Well, we're told in Luke, and Jesus, looking out over Jerusalem on his way in, wept. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. How blessing was there for you. Your, your king is coming in. How this could have been a day of blessing. But behold, you did not know the things that make for peace. You didn't know the things that make for peace. The king is coming and he's coming to bring peace, but Jerusalem doesn't want it. They're going to reject him. And Jesus says, unfortunately for you, I know where this story goes, not just to my own crucifixion, but through that to the destruction of Jerusalem. The day is coming when not one stone will be left standing on another. It's all getting torn down because you didn't know the thing that made for peace. You did not recognize in me the day of your visitation. That here your God is in your midst and who wanted to be like a mother hen gathering her chicks beneath her wing to protect and preserve her, but you would not. And Jesus is weeping because his own people don't recognize the peace that he has come to bring. They're going to reject it. 
And so our king is a king of peace. And then finally, our king is a king of dominion. Make no mistake about it. He is the king. Don't let the tears, the tears are true and the tears should, the, the tears should remind us about the heart of our Savior and the tears should be models for us as we look out upon our world, which infuriates us. We're good at that. We're good at being infuriated about the world. But it would also do us good probably to weep for the world. So the tears don't, don't, the tears are not uh, a distraction from what it means to be king. Again, this is Jesus showing us what it means to be king. And if we're going to live in him and follow him, then we need to follow him even in that way of tears. But at the same time, don't let the tears keep you from remembering that this is the king who has and will have dominion. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, the horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow shall be cut off. He shall speak peace to the nations and his dominion, his reign, his conquest shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. You want to be in this crowd. You, you want to be standing beside the road, even though our king is weeping, even though he's riding on the back of a donkey, even though he's riding, if you will, on a cross, even though he comes in this humility. This is where you want to be because that one is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Not in spite of these things, but because of these things as we looked at last week in our logic sandwich at the end of the Isaiah passage. He did these things. He bore our sorrows. Therefore, God has given him this place of exaltation because he did all these things. This day and this week and this suffering, again, is the very source and cause of his exaltation. The exaltation is not, you know, a happy ending to a bad story. It's, it's the fulfillment of the story. It's what the story was about from the beginning. And that is, he will have dominion over all the earth. You know, I was speaking to, I was speaking to one of my classes about Islam. And how, you know, Muhammad, when he dies, then Islam kind of takes over and they have a vision for world domination. They have a vision for the fact that the name of Allah needs to be taken out and and it they'll wait they'll take time but it they in their vision it needs to happen because Allah needs to dominate the world in that sense and in talking about that it's very easy to go oh those bad muslims but you do recognize that christianity has the same vision the way christ is going to have dominion over every race over every tribe over every kingdom Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. It's a competing... This is is why, you know, what's happening here between whether it's Islam and Christianity or anything else. All would-be powers are going to resist Christianity because it does talk about world dominion. Now, the difference between Islam and Christianity is Our dominion comes through crucifixion. The dominion of Christianity comes through a a savior riding in a donkey. 
The dominion of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ comes through suffering servanthood, whereas theirs comes by the expression of power and by the wielding of the sword. But make no mistake about it. Our king, we believe, will have world dominion from one sea to the other, from the river to the ends of the earth. Every knee will bow. Jesus, after his resurrection, And just before his ascension, when he gives the Great Commission, says to the disciples, Now, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go. Declare it. Bring it to the four corners of the world. Bring it to every race and every tribe and every tongue. Announce the fact that Richard is back. Announce the fact that Richard is on the throne. Announce the fact that Christ has taken dominion. This triumphant entry, this Palm Sunday, is Jesus now acknowledging and letting the world see it. And praise God, he has been faithful. He's a righteous and just king who through his humiliation, through his suffering, has brought peace to the world. And having brought peace to the world, we can declare it. And therefore God highly exalted him and gave him the name above every name, at which name every knee will bow and every tongue shall confess. And this is what we celebrate and rejoice in on Palm Sunday. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, how we thank you for our King. We shout, we sing for joy. For there is finally one seated upon the throne, a man who is God himself who rules with justice and righteousness, who rules with mercy and compassion, who forgives his own crucifiers, the very ones nailing him to the cross. With mercy, he extends forgiveness. And he is one who reigns over every corner of the world. And we give you thanks for that. We give you thanks for enlisting us into the citizenship within this kingdom. And we pray for those who do not yet know him. We pray that you would have mercy. We pray that you would use us as heralds then to go forth because our God reigns. And all would-be rulers have been overthrown by the power of his suffering and of his glory. So put his word on our lips. Give us his light. Give us his joy. Give us his peace that we might bring it to the world the world might know and repent and find that joy in him. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.